This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. Well, here we are on the next to last episode of Leviticus. And I don't know about you, but when I'm nearing the end of vacation, I always get what I like to call vacation depression. What? It's like the last day of vacation. I get depressed because even though I've had a blast, I don't want it to end. And maybe you're starting to feel that way, knowing that Leviticus is about to end. But don't fear, because that's exactly the reason that we created the Bible Book Club in the first place. Because after this, we're going to be moving on to numbers. I know. So there's a lot to be excited about. But yet here we are. And last episode in Leviticus, we were on chapters 23 and 24. In 23, we were reading about God's plan for all of the holy days or holidays, depending on how you look at it, in the Sabbath and seven different feast festivals, all the fun things that the Jews got to do. And they still celebrate these today. The Sabbath was the day of rest. God rested after creating the world. And then the different feasts over the course that God provided seven more days of rest for the Israelites. Lots of rest and lots of Sabbaths and all the details. Lots of PTO. Lots of PTO, (laughs) mental health days, whatever you call those today. Then, uh, you know, the Sabbath too, it didn't really matter what exact day it was. It just meant that you needed a day of rest for you. Well, for them back then, it did matter what day, but for us today, it's just important you take that day. You're right. And then chapter 24, we also learned that the Israelites got some more instructions, some possibly misplaced stories and the holy things that the bread and the oil were representing presenting for the Israelites. And then there was another fatal narrative, an example of what happens when you do not honor God's holiness and blaspheme, take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, so we are ramping up today. We've had a lot of sevens in the last episode, and that is going to culminate today. Remember, our friends, the Israelites, two million of them are still camped out at Mount Sinai, and God is preparing them in these final few chapters for the journey to Canaan and how he wants them to behave and act. So today we get to discuss a cool topic that only occurs in detail here in Leviticus. So this is a great reason why you're studying this book. It's a concept that rolls justice, freedom, economic opportunity, and family all into one. And I am talking about the Jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Super Sabbath, and a law that makes so much that is wrong right again. It's a reset, a return to a time when all was good, a return to Eden, a return to hope, a taste of what was and what was to come. It is a fascinating concept and one that only God could orchestrate. Let's start by reading the laws for life in the promised land regarding the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee in chapter 25, starting with the Sabbath year. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give to you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. 
For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows for itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants and hired worker and a temporary residence who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Can you imagine how you would feel if your employer said to you, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to pay you for seven years, but I want you to work six and take a year off. A dream come true. Can we bring this back? Uh, I love that God loves math because there is a pattern here that he weaves throughout his plan for us. And I mean the whole Bible. Every mention of seven points us back to creation, points us back to Genesis and season one of Bible Book Club. Go there, if you haven't already, back to the very beginning, because the plan of seven is building in the Old Testament. So far in Genesis, God created six days and rested on the seventh. In Exodus, God commanded the Israelites to work six days and rest on the seventh. In Leviticus, God commanded the Israelites to take an additional seven days off during during the feasts discussed in our last episode and in this episode in Leviticus 25 God is commanding the Israelites that they are to work the land for 6 years and let the land rest in the 7th year it is to be a sabbath year the land the animals and the people are all going to get an entire year of rest the people are going to learn to trust that it is God who provides their food not their own hard labor the Sabbath year will be a taste of what it was like in the garden when God provided and Adam and Eve were free from toil. Remember, Genesis 3.17 describes that curse of toil that they received because of the fall when they were going to live outside of Eden. It said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. God sees their back-breaking toil, and he's going to provide a whole year of rest for them. Next, God is going to command the super Sabbath, the culmination of seven, seven year Sabbaths called the year of Jubilee. Verse eight, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a year of jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines for it is the jubilee and it is holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. I don't know what the life expectancy exactly at this age was. I think Moses dies at 120. But uh, in your adult life, you probably only saw one jubilee. Maybe, maybe two, but you would have been old by then. Your land would have been worked by your children. 
It would have been such a day of huge, huge celebration when you heard those horns. Jubilee in Hebrew is yobel, which is an animal's horn that has been made into a trumpet. Today, the word jubilee is used to describe a special anniversary. And usually it is the 50th as coincides with what this term jubilee means to the Hebrews. But it can be another year, as in the case of the Queen of England, who celebrated a platinum jubilee or 70th anniversary as queen. The theme of this jubilee here in Leviticus is freedom. Verse 10 says, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And the famous Liberty Bell in Philadelphia bears the King James version of this very verse. The Jubilee began with holiness. It is fitting that it is in the seventh month of the year on the Day of Atonement, a cleansing start to the holy year that the Jubilee begins. The Jubilee was an act of God's grace and an act of Israel's faith. It was an act of grace because God provided the land, the food, and the return of family, just as he provided Adam and Eve with everything they needed in the garden. It also corrected any imbalances of wealth and erased all oppression. We're going to talk about that. Now, it was an act of faith because the Jubilee followed a Sabbath year, what Heather first read when we started this episode, which meant that the people would have to rely on God's provision for food for two years in a row. No planting, no harvesting. During that time, as the people were restored to family and the opportunity for prosperity, the Israelites were to remember God, Egypt, deliverance, and anything else he had done for them. They were to rest from their labor, live off the land, whatever it provided, and spend time in fellowship and tell the stories of God's faithfulness to their children. It would have been such a sweet time. It was a once in a lifetime chance to rest, rejoice, and reset their life. I want a Jubilee year. I'm craving it. Now, let me talk about family because we're going to read some more about this. Family was and is a priority to God yesterday, today, and will be forever. Family is the ultimate foundation of any society. And God built the nation of Israel very specifically on one family. When the Israelites get to Canaan, the land will be divided into tribes. The tribes are the 12 sons of Jacob, minus Levi and Joseph. Because Levi was the priests. Correct. Plus Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons. Now, see season one, episode 36, for the full story of how this happened and the full story of Jacob's sons. Therefore, Israel is really one big family. Every Israelite is a descendant of Abraham through his grandson, Jacob. Every Israelite belongs to one of the 12 tribes, plus Levi, of course. Each tribe will be allotted a plot of land that will be further divided by clan and then by the families within each clan. The families, clans, and tribes of Israel are the focus of God's attention and care. Hence, the provision in the year of Jubilee that any family members who have been dispersed 
from their family and their land should be allowed to return. The commitment to family and the next generation is one of the strengths of Judaism. Even today, Israel's birth rate at 2.9 is above the world average of 2.4 and well above the U.S. average, which has fallen to 1.6. Where is our commitment to family and how could God use that? Okay, so here we're going to start to read. This is God's unique provision for a way home. Verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price because it is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. When the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers throughout the land that you hold as a possession. You must provide for the redemption of the land." Did you hear that? The land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners. Let's start with this last statement first. This statement once again reminds the Israelites of where they began and where they are now living as foreigners or exiles. We talked about the reoccurring biblical theme of living in exile or as a foreigner in season one, episode five, right after the fall. For Adam and Eve, home was the garden. However, when they disobeyed, they were exiled from the garden and from the presence of God. Their descendants, God's people, were forced to live as foreigners in the world. To this day, we are still foreigners longing for our eternal home, that place of beauty and order and peace, that place where we once again walk in the presence of God. More on that coming in Revelations. In Hebrews, Paul explains how the Israelites had to live as foreigners. He starts in Hebrews 11 by commending the heroes of Genesis, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. Then Paul says this, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. At this point in Leviticus, God is about to provide a temporary 
earthly home for the Israelites in Canaan. And as the provider of the land, he gets to make the rules. So continuing and talking about what Heather just read, rule number one, God owns the land. They are simply tenants. Rule number two, if they sell their land, and a better term here would be lease their land, because remember, they don't own it, to another family member, it should be out of necessity, and others should not use it as an opportunity for unfair capital gain. Rule number three, the rental rate is based on estimated crop profits in the remaining years until the Jubilee. So if there's three years left to the Jubilee and you have no money and you need to rent out your land, you estimate that, oh, based on the size of my land, the crops will yield $100 a year of profit. Therefore, I can lease it out for $100. Maybe they only give, they give me 80 and they keep 20 and they make money and I make money. Does that kind of explain it? It does. But in the Jubilee, does that mean if you lease your land to those people, people. It's only for temporary. And then in that year, you get it back. Yes. Yeah, so nobody would lease their land past the Jubilee because n- no person leasing the land would set, would rent it past get that to keep it. <laughs> because they wouldn't get to keep yeah. it. So rule number four is this. Neither party should seek to take advantage of the other. This is a temporary fix for a difficult situation on the lesser's part. Rule number five, in the year of Jubilee, the land reverts to the original owner free and clear. What happens to the person who was living on that land? Where do they go? So they're not living. Remember, everybody has land. So for this is, and I'm going to kind of get into this. Normally, you'd go to a family member. So remember, we're a tribe, we're a clan. And I go to somebody in my clan and say, I don't have the money to work my land. I don't have the money to provide the seed or hire the people, whatever. And so you'd go to another family member, you'd say, can you work it? I will lease it to you. So it wasn't like the clan of Dan was leasing from the clan of Judah. It You that would could lease happen. only within your own. Oh, no, they would. That could happen. And we're going to cover that. But for the most part, you wanted to go to family. And I'm going to cover that. So the point here is God always provides a way home. Here in Leviticus, God provided a way home for Israelites' families to return to the land allocated to them in the year of Jubilee. In Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, God provided a way home for the dispersed nation of Israel to return to the promised land that they had lost to Assyria or Babylon. For the believer, God provided a way home through Jesus, who said in John 14, 2, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Then Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God always provides a way home, a place for his people, and always through redemption. God redeemed the Israelites from Egypt and provided a way to the promised land, their new home. God redeemed the families of Israel and provided a way back to their allotted land in the land of Canaan. And God redeemed us through his son, Jesus Christ, and provided a way back to the tree of life, the garden, eternity, a new heaven, and a new earth. 
Okay, in the next set of instructions, the entire focus is going to move from that provision for the way back to what God gave them um, as tenants to his land, as holders of the promised land, to protecting the poor through God's unique provision for economic equality. In the passage Heather is about to read, there are three divisions. Listen for them. God's intention for the protection of the poor is beautiful to me and is blatantly clear as each division begins with, and I put quotes around this, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor. And in each of the three ifs, the people become more severely impoverished, demonstrating that it doesn't matter how impoverished you are, God cares and will provide a way home. The first if focuses on the poor who must sell their land to survive. Verse 25, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So rule number one, keep the land in the immediate family if you can. Why? Because the closer you are in relation to the poor person, the more compassion you have for them and the fairer you will be with them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if you have to rent your property to somebody else, rent it to a family member because they're going to be happy when it's returned to you. Verse 26, if, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. And then they can go back to their own property. So rule number two, the family, the original owners of the land, can redeem their land as soon as they are able to refund the money for the years remaining on the lease, which ends at the year of Jubilee. So for example, if you have to lease your land and you lease it for 10 years, but you take that money and you work really hard and you can purchase that lease back, then the person that you leased it from has to give it back to you whenever you are able, because God's intention is that you get your land back as soon as possible. Verse 28, but if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their own property. Rule number three, in the year of Jubilee, everyone gets their land back and they get a chance to start over. There should be nothing left to pay as the rate for the land was calculated based on the number of crops until the Jubilee. But it is this beautiful reset where everyone gets to go home. Verse 29, anyone who sells a house in a walled city retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, the seller may redeem it. If it is not redeemed before the full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and to the buyer's descendants. It is not to be returned in the Jubilee, but houses and villages without walls around them are to be considered as belonging to the open country. They can be redeemed and they are to be returned in the Jubilee. Rule number four, houses and cities without land attached were not a source of agricultural income and therefore could be sold permanently. The seller did, however, have one year to redeem it before the purchase became permanent. I can't kind of imagine these little towns as people, as where they sold their crops and stuff. Maybe there were markets there. Maybe there were some people who ran the markets who really um, had given up 
up their land to do something else, who knows, but they didn't it didn't involve this land that was given for agricultural by family. I have an interesting observation. Okay. So what I think is interesting is that in our society, mm-hmm. we tend to think of like when we sell our house as a moving up or maybe a moving on to something better or something like that, where like they're ferociously fighting to stay oh, yes. in their house or to stay on their land. So they even like if they had to sell their house, they're still given like a whole year of grace to say like, I can buy it back. Yes, let me yeah. buy it back. You know, it's like, I want to sell my house and like get something better, you know, but, but they're, right. they're ferociously selling it trying to, to want get to back, back to, yeah they're, yeah, they're trying to get back to their own. Because for them, it this was the promised land. This was the place where they were going to be in the presence of Lord. It was a gift from God. And, and it wasn't, it was still his. They were living on his land. So Israel is so different than what we think in our culture of a nation. They are a nation for, I guess you call it, it's not patriotism, it's not nationalism. They're really the only Family-ism. uniquely theocracy. <laughs> yeah. They're a theocracy where their whole nation is built on God and they all believe this one thing and they're there. And that's why they're fighting today to return to the land. It's part of the promises that they believe in. And so there has to be a return of the land to the Jew for the for the Messiah to come because they don't believe as we believe that the Messiah has already come. Hmm. I think it's also confusing for us today because of just it's a foreign idea that you're buying something only temporary. When I buy a house, it's mine until I choose to sell it. Not somebody can come back and go, yeah, I sold it to you, but it was only eight months ago and I'd like it back now and here's the money back. And then you're kind of like, great, where do I go now? That doesn't happen to us today. And And I hope you don't mind, but I painted the kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, in this case, we're talking about the, the houses in the cities. We're not. Those could be passed from person to person. But the houses that were that the property, the land was really tied to their tribe and the promises of God to their tribe. And it was family. And so you would not only, like you said, treat your family better than you would someone else, but I think also it would uh, behoove the person who bought the house to treat that house with great care and respect because you knew that it was going to end up going back to that person eventually. So you want to leave it in a good condition for them as opposed to, you know, who cares what condition you leave the next person. Right. The, the land owners mm-hmm. to begin with, was that set out like from the beginning? Is that like, you know, God saying, here's the land and, you know, this patriarch is getting this much. Oh, for sure. Because because the thing is, and so like it, when I have boys, right, um, and they start to grow up and I want them there, is that me taking my property and then me as the patriarch of my, you know, seed mm-hmm. saying, you know, with with my land, I'm giving this to, you know, my first son and this to my second son. Well, and there, there were clans. So it may have been. So there were tribes, the 12 tribes. And when they get to their promised land, there is going to be division of the, division of the land. And some tribes are going to get more than others. <laughs> and some are even put like um, Simeon's, I think it is, is put in the middle of Judah because Simeon disappeared so badly. So it is based on, you know, where you are as a tribe. And then within the tribe, the clan gets a certain section. And then that clan subdivides into families. So yes, based on your sons and the clan, you will get a part of that. But what probably happened is it stayed within the clan and the clan worked it together. Right. But I see what Buck is saying, because it's like these guys are multiplying and filling the earth. And at some point, the land that you have, once you have their kids and then their kids and then 
and their kids, it then becomes a very small part of the land, well, the I would think. the problem is they never got to that point. Because it took them. Because they disobeyed. Or God may have given them more land. We don't know. It never got to that point because they disobey. And specifically, they disobey about the Sabbath. And so, again, this principle that we're learning right here in Leviticus, this is why God is making this the end of Leviticus. The Sabbath, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the Jubilee, because if they will adhere to these things, they're going to prosper, but they don't. And so what happens, and I want to talk about this later, but what happens is the anti-Sabbath. They go into exile, which is everything that the Sabbath is not, because they didn't adhere to what God had commanded them. Yeah, that makes sense. Shall we get back to the text? Yeah, let's get back to the Foreshadowing. Yes, foreshadowing. Verse 32, the Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in Levitical towns, which they possess. So the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, the house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned in the Jubilee, because the houses in the towns of the Levites are their property among the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to their towns must not be sold. It is their permanent possession. I love the story of the tribe of Levi. Go back and listen to it, um, like I said, at the end of Genesis, because this is a curse that was turned into something good and redeemed. And rule number five for the Levites is this. From the tribe of Levi, as you recall from season one, they're to be dispersed amongst the other tribes in service to the Lord. Therefore, they had to live in houses throughout Israel. If a Levite was forced to sell their house, it was redeemable and they get it back in the Jubilee. Unlike the other houses that if you sell it, you had a year to redeem it. If you didn't redeem it, you it was a permanent Even though that sell. belongs to that tribe, they still get right. it back. The, the, the Levites get their house back in the year of Jubilee. Yeah. Now, we're going to move on to the second if. Remember, these three ifs focus on different levels of poverty. The second if focuses on the poor who have sold their land and they're still poor. Verse 35, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and gave you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Remember, Israel's one big family. So if your brother called you and needed money, you would give it to him. You wouldn't charge him interest. Um, So rule number one addresses the heart of the people. Those who can help need to help the poor. Why? So that they can stay in Israel, so that they can prosper in this promised land. They are your family, and they are covenant members of the community of God. Well, I feel like God is also kind of like, hey, I'm the one who gave you that land to begin oh, with, yeah, so you for better sure. <laughs> for treat sure. other people the way better than I've treated you. Exactly. Rule number two 
Someone who helps someone else should not want to profit from it. That means you give. Why? So they can stay in Israel. They are your family and covenant members of the community of God. And remember, you want them to stay in Israel because God said to Abraham, "You, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. You will be a great and mighty nation. You will lead the world to me. And so this is what they're trying to do. Now, rule number three, you can loan them money that they should repay, but do not charge interest. And oh yeah, like Heather said, don't forget who brought you out of Egypt and gave you this land for free. It's really my land. (laughs) You're not giving them anything that's yours. Well, I feel like these are just good principles to live by today too. Exactly. Now, this third if focuses on the desperate poor who have sold their land and are still so poor that they are forced to sell themselves to survive. Verse 39, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors because the Israelites are my servants who I brought out of Egypt. They must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Rule number one. They are not slaves, but hired workers or temporary residents. For some of the poor, it was safer to sell themselves and become a part of another household with food on their table and a roof over their heads than to struggle in the streets with their children. They could then save the money they sold themselves for until their land was returned in the Jubilee and they could once again earn a living for themselves. Rule number two, they They are to remember that God redeemed them from slavery. Therefore, they are all God's servants and must not treat any of the Israelites as the slaves they once were. Slavery was something that had to end. Verse 44, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Rule number three, you may own slaves from other nations. Now, this sounds harsh, but we have covered in past episodes the rules for how you treat slaves. So remember, these are people sometimes who were um, decided to leave Egypt with them or were acquired because of difficult situations that they came to Israel and 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 wanted to become slaves. So they can own slaves from other nations, but there's lots of rules for them, and they really were treated not like the slaves in Egypt. Rule number four is that those slaves would not be freed at the Jubilee. The point of the Jubilee was to provide a way home for them to that land that they had been given. For their own people, you mean? For their not own for people, people of Israel, not for resident aliens who were not part of that covenant and given given as a member of a tribe, a portion of land. Verse 47, if a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, 
they retain the right of redemption after they've sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price for their release is to be based on the rate paid to a hired worker for that number of years. If many years remain, they must pay for their redemption a larger share of the price paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must see to it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So none of this was probably happening in the moment that we're we're laying out these rules. Remember, these are laws that God is setting forth for when they get into Canaan. And they may have people living among them who do become rich who are not Israelites. So rule number five, if an Israelite sells himself to a foreigner, which wouldn't be his first choice, living in Israel, they can be redeemed by a family member or by themselves. So again, those who are living as uh, resident aliens in Israel when they have inhabited Canaan must live by the rules of Israel. Rule number six, the price for their redemption will be calculated based on the rate of a hired worker times the number of years till the Jubilee. That makes sense. Rule number seven, the Israelites are to make sure the foreigner does not treat them harshly. No Israelite is ever to be treated harshly again as they were in Egypt whether they sell themselves to an Israelite or sell themselves to a foreigner. Rule number eight, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. So the Israelites must make sure that any resident aliens who acquire Israelite servants, slaves, um, treat them fairly and release them in the year of Jubilee living by the law of the land. I wonder what's to keep the foreigner from abiding by this. I mean, I guess they could get kicked out. This is where they're going to have to become a nation and have some kind of law enforcement when they get to the Cana- that the land of Canaan. This is really where we'll, we're going to read in First Kings and Chronicles, kind of the where the tribes really become, you know, the law enforcers and some tribes do better than other tribes. Okay, I want to talk about something that I never knew and talk about Jesus and the year of Jubilee. There is this thought about the year of Jubilee that Jesus is the redeemer of the year of Jubilee. And let me explain. In Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1, Isaiah references the year of Jubilee by calling it the year of the Lord's favor. But in saying that, the commentaries all interpret it as an expanded meaning of time. It is not just the year, it is the year. It is the year of the forever after Jubilee. So this concept of the Jubilee, this reset, this return to what God has promised is not just a return to the promised land that he gave them, but it is a return to the promise of the garden, of Eden, of the 
of perfection, of peace, of a release from chaos. In Luke 4, Jesus, having just passed the test in the desert, returns to his hometown of all places of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, big clue to us, goes into the synagogue, takes a scroll out of the rabbi's hand, and proceeds to read, of all verses, this Isaiah 61. And he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everyone in the synagogue is staring at Jesus because they know him. They've known him since he was a child. Then Jesus sits down and says one more thing. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wait, what? Fulfilled like past tense? How can Jesus, whom they've known as a child, be the fulfillment of the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the super Sabbath, the Jubilee, the final Jubilee of God's forever promises, the return to the garden? But he was. Jesus, little they know, was the Messiah sent to set the captives free, to redeem the people and give them the gift of eternal life in his presence. The jubilee they all look forward to, the forever jubilee, the reset of life in Eden. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I can imagine the people sitting there listening to Jesus kind of like start whenever he said that, like looking at each other going, did he really just say that? who are you? I wonder if they actually understood it or if it was just really confusing to them. Apparently, according to the commentaries, they knew that this Isaiah 61 referred to that ultimate jubilee. So the jubilee, again, there was the Sabbath with pointed to creation. There was the Sabbath of Sabbaths, you know, the year of Sabbaths, which were pointed to the Garden of Eden. And then the jubilee, which pointed to this reset of what God created in the garden that would continue forever. So they looked at this Isaiah 61 as that forever reset, that that longing, that thing they looked forward to when the Messiah would come and reign again and all would be made right. And here Jesus walks in and picks up a scroll and reads that very verse and says, oh yeah, and by the way, it's been fulfilled. I am it. I am that reset. Yeah. And so they, I wonder if they knew it in that moment or if it was like after he died, they started thinking back, oh, when he did that, that's what he meant. Well, if you keep reading in Luke, they get angry that he is so audacious to think that he is it. And they actually, you know, cast him out of their hometown. They chase him out of town. Yeah. Because to to them, he's been blasphemous. Right. How can you, we saw you grow up. How can you be the Messiah? Well, and last episode you read or we read what happened to people who blasphemed so they must have not wanted to stone him but they knew that they probably should have if he had blasphemed exactly this is like the biggest mic drop ever (laughs) it is a mic drop it is a total mic drop jesus walking in the synagogue on the sabbath on the sabbath he's supposed to be resting right yeah but he's like no listen i'm I am rest. Like, yeah. I am the fulfillment of this. I am rest. That's 
crazy. It's crazy. And to them, it must have been crazy. And and so, again, it's another part of the Jubilee that we really don't know was hidden to me. I did not ever see this before, that that this that when he was reiterating and re- actually literally reading Isaiah 61, he was saying, hey, I'm the Jubilee, guys. Get on board. Um, okay, so here's another one that's wrapped up in this Jubilee concept. And it's Jesus, the prevailing light of the Sabbath. Now, I know this is we're getting to the end of this podcast, but track with me here. Listen to this. So in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 2 is the story of the seven days of creation. I never saw this before. And I taught, you know, we, we talked about this in season one, episode one. On the first day, God creates light and separates it from the darkness. And he says, and there is evening and morning every day for six days. It, re- it is reiterated six times. And there was morning and there was, uh, actually it says, and there was evening and there was morning and there was evening and there was morning and there was evening and morning. Everything he creates, he says, there was evening and morning. However, on the seventh day in Genesis 2-2, it says this, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. On the seventh day, there is no evening and then there is no morning, no eighth day, no restart of day one. What happened? Did the light prevail? Did it just keep going? Is this what our eternal jubilee will look like? Eternal light? No darkness? In the New Testament, Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the focus. Jesus, the light of the world, was raised from the dead on the day after the Sabbath, after the night with no evening, and the light of day merged with the light of the next day. For believers, rest or the eternal jubilee was won on the day of his resurrection. The light from the Sabbath never ended because Jesus, the light, was resurrected. The Sabbath is the hope for the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate jubilee that never ends, where we find rest in the presence of God forever. The pattern God set in Genesis when he created the world is the pattern for the eternal Sabbath. There will be no day after. There will only be ever after. So he created the Sabbath basically way back in Genesis, but we just didn't notice. He created the Sabbath, but he never said at the end of the Sabbath that there was evening and there was morning. And and then that same, and then Jesus fulfilled it when he died because then there was. And he began that whole Genesis saying there was light. So the first thing he created was light and he separated the light from the darkness. And then he goes through these six days of creation. And then on the seventh day, he never says there's evening and there's morning because the fulfillment of that next day, that evening, is that there is no darkness to come again because Jesus is the light and he will reign over the darkness and there will be darkness no more. He is the Jubilee. He is that year that is to come where the Sabbath never ends just like he told them he was. By that last day of creation, God had created everything, even the crown of his creation. And so he created man and woman. And so then he knew that, and I'm again, I'm speculating, right? I'm, I'm speaking into this, but how it helps me see it. 
is that then he knows that at that from that point on, there is always going to be a presence of him on the earth because he has his creation. Mm-hmm. He, he He's put his likeness in them and the humans that he created. And then when you follow along, because um, even earlier in... Um, this episode or the one before, I can't remember, you were talking about how the oil was just for the lamps mm-hmm. and it was just mm-hmm. to provide mm-hmm. light. We see also that there is a lot of focus on an anointing of oil. Mm-hmm. And so if the first purpose for oil was to keep lamps lit mm-hmm. and and not anything else, then the anointing of his people with oil is a symbolism of saying, you are the light, you are my light in this world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then as we continue on into Christianity and New Testament, um, you know, we're told that we're the light of the world and that um, that darkness will never put out the light mm-hmm. and, you know, that we're his temple, his, his dwelling place. And so, you know, it's like he rested, but then in, in a subtle way saying, um, by the way, there is no more darkness from here on out because mm-hmm. it's I've made it. I'm here. My people are here. Let's let's go. Let's do this. You know, so. I just I think like that's that's kind of a a cool thought for me um, personally, but I don't know if that helps anybody else. I love that in the end of the description of creation, when he doesn't say that there was evening and morning, he's really telling us later, um, you know, in John, when it says in the beginning, it was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's really telling us he had this plan for our way home, even way back in the beginning, even on that seventh day of creation, this seven and seven and sevens, you know, this use of the seven, um, he had this plan for our way home, even way back in the beginning on that seventh day, he knew how he was going to bring us home. He knew what the story, Mm. how the story, the story of the entire Bible would unfold. And that word, Jesus Christ was with him in the beginning. And they knew that he was going to be that jubilee, that way home, that seven times seven times seven that was going to lead to our um, homecoming, even way back in the beginning. Yeah. And I I even think even the promise of the jubilee is, is saying, God saying to the people, Listen, I know I took Eden away, mm-hmm. but there's always there. There's I'm always going to show grace. I'm well, always going to be allowed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. right. But we were banished from Eden. Yes, he knew it would um, have the consequences. But he knew, like in that moment, he's showing. You know, God is showing His grace and His favor on His people and His creation to say. Listen, I know you're not there now, but you will return yeah. and we will get I back know to you're going to be exiled, yeah. but I know the way home. Yeah. I'm going to provide the way home. And then the Israelites The way, the truth, up. and the life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope you guys have all enjoyed the cameo from our editor, Buck, today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you weren't like, wait, wait, Heather's voice just got really low. <laughs> exactly. so, so Buck usually has these words of wisdom for everyone and and. He has a mic today because there were huge Bible benders in today's episode, and we knew he would have great insight that he could offer you guys. So welcome, Buck. We hope that you can Thank offer you. more. Yeah, for those of you episodes. who don't know, Heather and I are not pastors, but Buck <laughs> is. <laughs> What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.